everyone and welcome to Seminary for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Sabrina Reyes-Peters. This is episode three, which is the second part of my conversation with Dirk Vonderhorst. So if you haven't listened to part one, which is episode two, I highly recommend that you do that. It's not going to make a lot of sense if you jump right into this one, as you'll be missing some context. Speaking of context, uh, that is a large part of our conversation here as we get into how to relate to uh, historical events um, and uh, past beliefs that other people have held. Uh, We get into the problems uh, that we encounter when trying to interpret David and Jonathan's relationship as it is described or not described uh, in the Hebrew scriptures. So one, a couple of notes. So number one, uh, a figure named Audrey Lord is mentioned. And in case you don't know who she is or was, uh, she was a, a writer, um, a librarian uh, in the civil rights era. And she was also a, a queer womanist. And she wrote a lot about identity and things like that, and also eroticism, as you will see in the podcast. Second note, uh, there is a lot of frank discussion in this episode about sexuality. So if you don't feel like listening to something like that, or if you're a parent or caretaker, caregiver of little ones, and you don't want them to hear that kind of content, I would just use caution. Uh, and discretion here. Anyway, that's it from me. Here is part two of my conversation with Dirk Vonderhorst. So in discussing relational theology, Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned a couple of terms that I was kind of rusty on. Um, One was a historicist and the other term was, I think, presentist. Did I say that right? So what are those and um, how, like, how, how, what is their role in uh, relational theology? Yeah, so um, his, so there's a few different ways people use the term historicity or historicism or um, historicist thinking, right? So one way of just talking about his, historicity is just did something happen, right? So we yeah. have a que- an open question about the historicity of David and Jonathan, right? So there are biblical scholars now who uh, – a minority who are who say the records we have about David are so late in comparison to when we said that you know when when they say he existed that this is probably a made up character right so then mm-hmm. you know David does not have historicity he's not a he's not a real person um, that's that's historicity right uh, historicism is just kind of the sense of everything you um can know or everything exists in a particular historical context right so what happened in what's happening today right is 
with the internet, right? The fact that we can Skype, right, is changes the kind of communication, the kind of self-constitution. There's all kinds of ways in which just the historical fact of Skype, right, means we have a different mode of situating knowledge than we did before we had Skype and the internet, right? So ev Absolutely. every kind of every kind of a statement we have about the world sits in a particular historical context, and those historical contexts change. And so historicism is just a, a sense of saying, hey, you have to really contextualize everything in its historical context. Um, there's a way that can be, and I think the thing that relational theology brings to that is the fact that just because something's in one historical context doesn't mean that that once that historical context has passed, it's a it's a self-contained unit, right? There's always mm -hmm. influence uh, back. There's, there's influence of like your present day uh, presuppositions that are gonna you can't you can't like step out of your present day situation and just be like, okay, uh, I've I've gone into, I've opened the Bible and now I'm in a time machine and I'm three thousand years ago and I see everything just like that, right? Uh, on mm -hmm. the other hand, um, right, you also um, you know, so that's going to color the way you see it, right? On the other hand, like what we do today, right? Even though it's contextualized completely differently, right? Uh, the Bible still has a huge influence on what happens in the world today, right? And it's being read and it's being recontextualized. And and so this 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 object, right, that has come from a particular historical context, right? It's, it doesn't stop there, right? So that recontextualizing is like, part of that sort of sense of like, yeah, you, you, everything happens in a particular place at a particular time, and that's mm -hmm. going to be something you really need to look at, at how, the, how that changes over time. Um, so it's just, I guess, maybe the easy answer to what is historicist is just really close attention to historical specificity, right, and how that changes. Presentism okay. is just the sense that what we're doing now gives us access to reality, uh, or especially gives us access to moral insight, right? The way it's often used is like, hey, um, you know, uh, we see things a certain way, and then when we look at the past, they didn't do it that way, and so uh, we can judge uh, the past for not living up to our standards, right? Um, and so there's a certain sense in which that's actually appropriate, right? So, like, I'm not going to say, like, oh, well, Slavery was in the 19th century, so I can't judge it. Like, no, I, I can still judge slavery as wrong, right? Um, but there's also a sense in which I also need to look at the terms in which that was situated, right? In terms of like how how the arguments people were making to defeat slavery, right, are different than the arguments we would use today to say it's wrong, right? right. So paying attention to like the rhetoric of abolitionists is not going to say is is a going to say yes we can we can still make that moral we can pick a side right in in that debate uh about slavery uh but we can also see that you know the way that they're thinking may not be the way we're thinking about that today right and and to to um say okay there's something there's something different going on there um the other thing, right, that happens with presentism is, and this is this is where history of sexuality gets very interesting, right? Is we tend to think like, oh, okay, sexuality is something you experience with your body, so we have some some kind of direct access to what sexuality is, right? Because it's, it's very immediate, right? You mm -hmm. you 
you know, someone touches you and you get excited and that's like, boom, right? Or someone catches your eye and you get excited and boom, right? So there's, there's a way in which sexuality feels very, very, very just like here, now, boom. Um, if we look at sort of what counts as sexuality or how people are figuring out what what a sex is, that looks very different over time, right? So when we're asking the question, like, were David and Jonathan gay, that might that might not, we might not even even know the question to get at that in its historical context, right? Because mm -hmm. when we look at laws about sexuality in the biblical world, they seem to be strictly about penetration, right? There are, there's, yeah. there's, there's no law about women touching each other, right? Because penetration isn't part of the picture, right? Mm -hmm. So the so things, things that look sexual to us might not even fall under the realm of sexuality for David and Jonathan, right? So, you know, like if um, if David and Jonathan, okay, so it, it the Bible clearly says they kissed. That's, that's uh, you know, what kind of kiss that is, we don't know, right? But um, if that leads to some kind of other sexual activity that's not penetrative, uh, that might not even be something that they're worried about, right? Even though to us, we might be like, but that's a hand job. That's sex, right? So they might <laughs> yeah. be like, well, being friendly. Um, so, so that sense of of taking a not necessarily bracketing your moral perspective, but kind of slowing your role a bit and trying to understand the terms in which people in other cultures or other times of histories are framing things. Uh, mm -hmm. So you don't just rush to judgment. That is part of the process of trying to get out of presentism um, and just trying to really understand the, cate the, the categories you're using to understand things might be very, very different categories. So in, yes. in my case, right, I don't I don't want to get trapped in, in a sort of a presentist like we know better now, um, because the other thing we know from history, right, is we are running around with, you know, a lot of moral certitude right now. And then we don't realize that, well, like maybe in 10 or 20 years, people will be looking at us with a different moral lens that will be like, how could they do that? Right. We can't yeah. see where where our blind spots are. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I that sense of like being aware that moral uh, moral dialogue changes. Um, Right, it gives us a little bit more humility in terms of like how do we, how do we struggle for for justice? Um, you know, how how do we put together our struggles for justice with kind of some kind of sense of like, yeah, we might be wrong about some things, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, that sense of like we might be wrong about some things is not the most productive thing to focus on when you're trying to fight for something, right? You want yes. you really want to like say this is the thing I want to fight for and I'm going to take my stand. Um, but there's there's real limitations to you know um, being being too rigid in in your sense of what's right or wrong. So so what I want to what I want to do is say you don't have to make a choice between the historicist and the presentist. You have to establish what the relationships plural right between those two things are right. There's always something going on in the present. There's always something going in the past. They're different, and there's all sorts of ways those two things can be put together. And there's not just one way, like it's not just like we were right and they were wrong or they were right and we we're wrong or we have to do what they said or they have to do what we said. There's 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 a variety of ways you can say, oh, okay, there's something here, there's something there. Uh, oh, and then there's a third thing that happened in between, like how does this all fit together? And there's not just one way to put all that together. Yeah, so it's like 
a, a dance between like the past and the present. And again, it's like uh, looking at your like there it is again, like the word context, like context <laughs> is really, really important, whether yeah. it's yeah. in the uh, historical context, uh, moral context, which <laughs> plays into historical context and so on and so on. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So um, in the book, uh, you talk about eroticism quite a bit, naturally, uh, since it's a book uh, exploring uh, the question of or e- exploring uh, what people have said about the question, you know, did David and Jonathan have a ro- romantic relationship? Mm-hmm. Um, but eroticism also doesn't necessarily have a sexual context all the time i feel like Mm -hmm. most people when they think of the word erotic their mind jumps to like something sexual Mm -hmm. um so so what else can what else are we talking about when we when uh, refer to um eroticism here um i think hayward draws a lot on um Audre Lorde in her sense of what eroticism is, right? And so for Lorde and for Hayward, there's this real continuum, right, between the kind of heightened sensation of sexuality and the sort of a general sense of heightened sensation that makes you feel alive, right? So that's, um, you know, just taking in a sunset, right, that's uh, with, like, beautiful colors, right, and you're just like, you've had a bad day, and then those colors just kind of like, oh, wow, right, and you're, like, you're glad to be alive again. Um, so I I would say, you know, um, I think I would think of eroticism as, as any kind of sensual engagement that just heightens awareness of aliveness, right? Um, and that that can take many forms and sexuality is overlaps with that a lot. Right. I think there's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, se- se- the having sex can be more or less erotic depending on the context. Right. So there's, there's sex that ends up not being terribly erotic sometimes. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's incredibly erotic. Uh, right. So I think, I don't think those two terms are the same, um, but I do think there's a lot of overlap. I don't know if that. Right. Yeah, that would make, I'm picturing in my mind, like, a Venn diagram, like, Mm -hmm. sexuality on one side, eroticism on one side, Mm -hmm. like, they can have different distinctions, but, Mm -hmm. like, meet in the middle, Um, so it just seems like, it just seems like it's, again, it's, like, about relationship um, and your own body. Yeah, Um, and I would say, say, you know, with regard to, like, where this book is coming from, um, I think at this point in my life, I've kind of lost that daily sense of this. But um, for a long time, right, there was really this sense that music, spirituality, sexuality were really kind of very strongly in that same same ballpark of um, just sort of that heightened sense of of awareness, a heightened sense of, of enjoyment, heightened sense of aliveness, right? I, I really did kind of put that all into one basket pretty much all the time, right? It was kind of like music would be something that I would have an intense reaction to that would, you know, um, I think um, in the years, uh, I, I think that kind of sense of those things coming together, like really reached its high point in my life when I was doing that second master's, partly because I was, I'm constantly engaging with with uh, thought that really 
brought those things together. Um, one of the teachers I had um, at Virginia was someone named Suzanne Cusick, and she wrote an essay called On a Lesbian Relation with Music, a Serious Effort Not to Think Straight. And so she's really delving into kind of the overlaps between music and, and sexuality. Um, and not as explicitly, but if you talk to her, she's like, yeah, spirituality is definitely um, a, a strand in there, right? So, so that really um, kind of was a high point where I really did not experience any kind of separation between those three things. Um, hmm. I think there's, since then, you know, there I've kind of noticed, well, the music I'm drawn to and the things that turn me on sexually and the kind of you know, religious thoughts I'm having, they don't feel as fused in that way, um, which in some ways, right, is is perfectly, um, what should I say, um, uh, perfectly, why is the word not coming, it's not a, not a hard word to say, perfectly congruent uh, <laughs> with this idea that, you know, you're, you're establishing relationships between different things, right? So the idea yeah. that they're all going to be the same thing is going to break down the relationship because then you've just fused it into one thing and there's not a relationship anymore, right? There's, there's not mm -hmm. a relationship between different things. Um, at the same time, you know, the, the relationship is both an acknowledgement that something's different and a bringing of those differences together, right? Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a time in my life when that coming together was really what what music, spirituality, and sexually were all about. I really did not experience much difference between those things at all. Um, and, you know, I guess, you know, as, as you know, life, life changes and, you know, you get into, you, you grow and you get older and you uh, get distracted or whatever, you know, you, uh, things that that seem perfectly fused at one point, right, can come apart. So I I don't feel the 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 I still feel it, but I don't feel the 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 absolute um, union of those terms that I did uh, when I set out to write this book. Um, so gotcha. that's that's something where I I might um, you know kind of look at the book and say, hmm, okay, where 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 would you know what where would i write things differently now with kind of that different sense of maybe these things aren't as as overlapping as as they were when i when i first started that's that's a helpful um point of context um so what what are some of the problems uh in the hebrew text that we come across when we're trying to figure out you know, okay, uh, did David and Jonathan have a gay relationship or did they not? So the the most obvious problem, if you're going to say that's what happened, is that the text never ever says um, they lied together, right? That would be a word you would, yes. you would expect to see. They never said uh, one of them takes the other. That would be another word that would could indicate right. sex. Um, it never says one of them goes into the other. That's another word that you, uh, you have. Shechav, lachach, bo. There's one more that. Uh, oh, and it never says they knew each other, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so to those, know. Yes. Those, those are the words that are pretty unambiguous in terms of if they want. I mean, they they're not completely unambiguous because like no can mean a couple of different things, uh, right? But those are pretty clear indicators of they had sex. That never happens. So mm -hmm. um, 
So if you want to say, you know, like they didn't have sex, the text says doesn't say they had they, they had sex. So what are some of the reasons people say, well, wait a second, it looks like they are erotically involved with each other. So um, one thing that's absolutely clear, and again, this is a word that's ambiguous, but the 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 first thing that's clear is that the dominant way that relationship is described from beginning, from the very beginning to the very end, uh, is the word love, right? There, there's, mm-hmm. there's this love Jonathan has for David that is consistent. It's also clearly parallel to his sister's love for David. There's, there's an absolute parallel between those two loves. Uh, and they do similar things, right? So they're at, so the the person David marries is doing exactly the same things that the person who loves him is doing, right? So there there mm-hmm. seems to be some kind of parallel there. Um, so of course, okay, so that but that doesn't really tell us very much because um, we have all sorts of meanings of love, right? And so one of the things that love means in the ancient world is political loyalty, right? So a lot of people are like, well, yeah, this is a story about politics, obviously, right? I mean, the main point of the story in which um, Jonathan and David get together is the fact that David supplants Saul as king. That's the main point of the story, right? And that is a political point. That's like a very straight up political point. So to try and and get some Something non-political in the story is not going to make a whole lot of sense, right? Um, so when we look at at covenants or treaties between um, various kings or kings and vassals in the ancient, there's often like love and loyalty are terms that are used as like I love you, so I'm not going to wage war against you, right? That that's used mm-hmm. a lot. The thing that's different though is that in none of these treaties do we have that love of a of a uh, between a god and a people, or between a king and a god, or between a king and a king, or a king and his people, never once, other than in this particular text, do we see that love compared to the love of women, um, right? That's 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 a very unusual comparison to make. Yes. Um, so, so so something something's different is already like it is political language. It is a political text, and that those political overtones really should not be discounted, and Again, coming back to relational theology, that would totally make sense that you would want to hold those pieces together, right? Because mm-hmm. relationality is not just about my friendships, right? But it's also about the relationships we have with, you know, like when I buy a pair of shoes, there are a lot of people I have a very concrete relationship just by I'll never meet the person who made those shoes, uh, but we have a we have a very concrete relationship, right? Somebody did something to that shoe, and then sometime later I'm wearing that shoe, right? So the mm-hmm, idea that yeah. relationality is just about eroticism, or right, and Hay- Hayward's very clear that you know um, there's many levels of relationality, and that includes the sexual and the political, and you know you can't really separate those those things. So the idea that you would separate the sexual and the political doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense, um, A, in light of the extent to which David David's story unites sex and politics throughout the text. So um, one example of how sex and politics in David's life are absolutely merged is um, the example when his son Absalom 
um, wants to or tries to stage a, uh, a coup right against his father. He wants to take mm-hmm. the throne. And one of the first things Absalom does right is take all of um, David's concubines to the roof uh, and has sex with them in public view of everyone. Right. Um, and that's his way of saying, like, I'm in, in control now, right? So the text does not make a distinction between sex and politics at all. Also, the way that you can see that David strategically uses marriage as a way to advance his interests uh, yes. in, in the state, right? So, um, you know, and it looks like he marries everybody in Saul's household. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a woman named Ahinoam uh, who is Saul's wife. And then it says later, David married Ahinoam, right? It doesn't say mm-hmm. he married yeah. Saul's wife, but is this the same woman? Is this not the same woman? So if David is actually married to Saul's wife and Saul's daughter, which Leviticus says you're not supposed to do at all. Correct. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, then he's just also married to Saul's son, right? And it's, it's just part of this, like, marriage is the way that I amass power, right? And that this mm-hmm. the story does not make that distinction that people who are trying to say, like, oh, this couldn't have been gay, so it's actually this word love just means politics, doesn't make any sense in light of the logic of the text or even subsequent logic, right? So the way in which um, political alliances in early modern Europe were formed through marriages, right? That was just taken yes. for granted that if you wanted to have a strong alliance with, you know, if England and Poland wanted to have a strong alliance, they would like marry their kids, right? And then, okay, mm, right, the, right, the, the, yeah. the person or, you know, legitimize sex with, and you're supposed to make babies and then we don't go to war with each other, right? Because there's, right? <laughs> yeah. and then the other, you know, and the other thing that I, um, that this kind of baffles me is like, if people are saying this in the American context, I just think of, the way that sexuality can just completely undermine, a, you know, like I, I think of um, John Edwards or Gary Hart, right? Uh, the only thing that that dissolved their political fortunes was sexual misconduct, right? Um, mm-hmm. So we actually, today, we don't make that distinction either between what's sexual and what's political, um, right? So there's a certain kind of sexuality that has to be upheld for political legitimacy. Um, so so there's a way in which that word love, right, can mean something political, can mean something sexual, where that line is, is is not clear. Okay, so we have the word love. We have certain ways of using covenant language that are unusual, not just the fact that... Um, um, you know, it, it compares the love to love of women, right? Which is probably a more sexual love than a political love. Um, but also the, the language of the covenant is not so-and-so made a covenant with so-and-so, but so-and-so and so-and-so, they made a covenant, right? So the language mm-hmm. of the covenant actually binds them together much more closely than a, 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 a other kind of covenant would. Um, so, so that's another aspect that... Um, seems to uh, point to, hey, um, this looks like it might have been more than friends. Um, Another point in the text that suggests that something more than friendship might have been going on is Saul, um, Jonathan's father, uh, at one point is upset with Jonathan for taking David's side and trying to protect him from Saul. Saul's trying to kill David and Jonathan's trying to protect him. And at one point when Saul figures out that Jonathan is protecting David, 
He says, you know, you son of a, you know, a perverse, rebellious woman. Uh, don't you know that, uh, don't I know that you have taken David's side to your shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness, right? Mm. So there's a sense of, that's really like, Saul seems to be thinking, okay, this is not just, you know, something to be embarrassed about, but this is something that I'm actually going to use pretty graphic language to describe. So um, again, you know, that doesn't prove anything, especially in light of the fact that Saul is not a reliable character, right? Saul gets everything wrong. So if you want to say, uh, hey, the Bible doesn't like homosexuality and you can't say that David and Jonathan were gay, it's very easy for you to say like, yeah, and Saul thought they were and that proves they weren't because Saul doesn't get anything right, right? <laughs> so yeah. uh, so I, think, I think, you know, that's, that's the piece that I haven't actually seen people who want to argue against it grab onto, but I think that's a perfectly defensible argument to make is that, you know, here's this guy who like at every point in his career gets things wrong. I mean, he doesn't get anything right. So if he gets this one thing right, that would actually kind of be a miracle that this is the one thing he got right. Right. Um, so I would, I would accept that as an argument against a uh, queer or gay reading of, of David and Jonathan. So that, uh, but I also think, you know, it's, it's something the text puts out there and it's something that, you know, um, triggers your imagination. It's like, oh, okay, right. You're, it's once that's out in the picture, right out in the open, then it's like, okay, maybe that's not a, a reliable character saying that, but we have that image to kind of play around with and let our imaginations run with. Um, the other piece that um, people argue about is when David's running, you know, when David finally runs away from Saul, Jonathan sets up this this sort of rendezvous. They, you know, they go out into this field and he brings this kid along. He says, "Hey, I'm going to shoot some arrows really far. Go run, go run and catch the arrows." And then he and yeah. uh, Jonathan are are alone, and they kind of have this extended farewell. And then there's this verse that says, "And they kissed each other and they wept over each other until David made large." Mm -hmm. That's what yes. the text looks. And so everyone's like, well, what does that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense because it doesn't what what is he making large, right? Okay, mm -hmm. so um, there's all sorts of ways you could read that, but this again, whenever you're reading a text, right? What one element will what, how you read one element is going to affect how you read another element, and vice mm -hmm. versa, right? So you have to be careful about not getting into vicious circles. Um, but one way to look at that, right, is to say, hey, they're kissing each other and something got large. Uh, well, what gets large when a man kisses? Okay, we know <laughs> what that is. Yeah. Um, and so, so, you know, it's perfectly possible. And again, right, that they might actually be going there and not saying that they had sex because if they're not putting it in something, they're not having sex in that kind of logic, right? So there could be right. some kind of you know, sort of heightened eroticism or heightened, you know, sort of emotionality that gets expressed genitally, but they wouldn't call that sex. And if they're not calling it sex, then it's not something they're legislating and it's not something they're concerned with, right? So mm -hmm. so that's, so there's that moment where they're kissing and something gets big and some people say, okay, okay, so that's, you know, it, it went there and other people are like, that's that seems like a stretch. And again, that's a point where I think, you know, you can take it either way and be perfectly reasonable um, in your uh, reading of the text. Um, there's one thing that I think is unique that, that to, to my reading of the text. I haven't seen this anywhere else. But immediately after that incident, um, David 
flees and ends up at this temple or the sanctuary uh, where there's a priest. And he has this conversation with a priest. And the, he's like, hey, you know, I, I need some food. And the priest is like, uh, aren't you David? And he's like, yeah, the king sent me on a mission, which is an absolute lie. Um, and I'm, I'm, I've am i sent my, my men ahead of me and I need some food. And the priest says, well, I only have consecrated bread here, which means like, I, I just have to make sure everyone's in a pure state. Uh, has anyone touched a woman lately? If not, I can give you the bread. If so, I can give you the bread, basically. Yeah, I mean, so, mm -hmm. and David's like, oh yeah, no one's touched a woman, right? And so again, like, this is all in the context of David's making up stories to, um, uh, you know, get get away, right? To to get what he wants, to not be caught. Um, but if 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 we're reading that first story, right, that about David got large, or David made something large, right, um, as sort of a erotic encounter, right, and the next thing we hear is somebody asking about, like, well, you know, has anyone had sex lately, right? And David's kind of denying it, right? It, it ties those two scenes together actually quite well because you have that sense of like, oh, okay, we're kind of, why is he asking this question right here? This is mm -hmm. this, this is a point where you want to get the story to move quite quickly, right? Because he has, David has to get somewhere. David doesn't want to be bogged down with, you know, instructions, right? So the mm -hmm. narrator is slowing down the, the pace of the story to draw attention to this one issue. And if you kind of look at it in light of that previous scene, right? Okay, what just happened? Uh, that That's a way you could kind of say, oh yeah, okay. So that actually does suggest that maybe something uh, hanky-panky wise was going on in, in the previous scene. Um, and then of course, uh, when Jonathan dies, right? He says, your love was greater than the love of women. And right. that's the one that most people always go to is like, okay, does mm -hmm. that mean that like, you know, having a friend is better than having a lover, or does it mean like, no, 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 you were a better lover than any woman I've had? Um, that you know, that's that's the question that um, is always up for grabs. So I think those are kind of the main points that people uh, end up, you know, going back and forth on and saying, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong. And um, I, I don't actually think there's a way to settle that question because. Um, the text is ambiguous, and right. um, and um, in in my in my I remember in my dissertation uh, when I when I got it back from one of my readers, you know, one of my readers had written in the in the comments like Hebrew Bible loves ambiguity, Christian theology hates it, right? Mm, uh, because, yeah, you know, there's ambiguity all over the place in in this story, um, and there's a there's a wonderful book by Susan Ackerman called When Heroes Love, where she really just kind of says like. Yeah, it doesn't say they had sex, but there's all this suggestive imagery, both in the Gilgamesh epic and in this story, right? And she's saying um, what happens is both of these stories kind of deal with some kind of in-between state of existence, right? So mm -hmm. uh, Gilgamesh is kind of this in-between state between, like, growing up and dying, right? And so he's kind of like, oh, right, like, I'm trying to figure this out. And David's in this really in-between state because he's both been anointed as king, but he's not really the king, right? So that the entire story is kind of dealing with this in-between state, right? And she's saying eroticism in stories tends to get sort of more ambiguous as a way of highlighting that the story in general is in an ambiguous place. Um, and so she's she's kind of suggesting that yeah, it's not. It's it's supposed to be erotically ambiguous to bring our mind to the fact that we're actually narratively in a general ambiguous place. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening to Seminary for the Rest of Us, a show where everyone is welcome to God Talk. Find us on the web at seminary.show, on Twitter at seminaryshow, and or send us an email at seminary.show at gmail.com. Oh, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to give us a rating. Thanks again, and catch you next time.